Hi, welcome to Operation Healthcaring. My name is Laura Kohler. Today, I'm going to be sharing a personal story with you about my own pill popping problem. Last month, I went to go see my doctor for a checkup and surprise, surprise, the doctor told me that my vitamin D level was low. The doctor instructed me to start taking vitamin D, one pill, 5,000 international units daily, and then to return in three months to have my level rechecked and make sure that things were looking better. Fast forward a couple of weeks to a conversation that I was having with my clinic manager and secretary. We were talking about our frustrations with patients who are given instructions and yet can't seem to follow through on the things that they're supposed to do. So I decided to share this story with them and I asked them, over the past two weeks, how many days do you think that I actually took the pill that the doctor instructed me to take? Do you think that I took all of the pills? Do you think that I took maybe half of them? Or do you think that I took absolutely zero? Let me ask that question to you out there in the audience. How many pills do you think that I managed to take? Well, you can have at least a little faith in me because over the course of the 14 days since the doctor had given me those instructions, I had actually managed to take a total of two pills. That's less than 20% of the pills that the doctor had asked me to take. After I shared that story, the clinic manager looked at me and she said, Laura, that's nothing. I went to go see the doctor months ago. She told me that I had a low vitamin D level, that I was supposed to start taking a pill every day, and guess what? I have taken absolutely zero pills. So what is it that makes it so difficult for us to follow through on instructions? The thing that I found so funny is that the clinic manager and I, we spend our days at work talking with people about following through on instructions that are given to them by their healthcare providers. And here we are, healthcare professionals, and we can't even follow through on the instructions that our doctors give to us. So what were some of the things that got in the way for me? Well, one of the funny things is that I actually have vitamin D pills in my house. The thing is, the doctor told me to take 5,000 unit pills, and the pills that I had in my house were 2,000 unit pills. So you'd think that I could just start taking the 2,000 unit pill, or maybe a couple of them, to kind of come close to the 5,000 units, but instead I was doing calculations in my head. So if I need to take 5,000 units every day, I could take two pills on one day and three pills on the next day and switch back and forth, Anyway, I thought this through, and in all that thinking, it got kind of overwhelming, and I just didn't take any pills at all. So another thing that I decided I needed to do was to maybe go and actually pick up these 5,000-unit pills at the store, but that meant that I needed to schedule a time to get there, and my life's kind of crazy, like many of you, I'm sure. So it was hard for me to get to the store, and then there may have been a time that I was actually at the store, but I didn't think of actually getting those pills at the time that I was there. And then once I did finally get those pills in my possession, then I needed to decide when I was actually going to take those pills. Was I gonna take them first thing in the morning? Well, for me, that didn't sound like such a great idea because my life is already quite chaotic in the morning. Could I put them in my lunch bag for work? 
Well, that might work on the days that I actually go to work, but what about the weekends? I'd be missing days in there. So there's a whole thought process, even after I have the pills in my possession, about when the best time is for me to actually fit that into my life. So I'm sure that there are some medication pros out there in the audience, but for me, there were mental blocks that were getting in the way for me actually following through on what the doctor had asked me to do. And the thing I'm gonna tell you here is really important. I wanted to take those pills. I wanted to follow the doctor's instructions. The problem is, is that I just didn't do it. I've just described my struggle to take one pill every day. Each day I come to work, I walk out on the dialysis floor and I talk with patients who are taking not just one medication, but multiple medications every day. The average dialysis patient takes 13 or 14 different types of medications every single day. The first patient that I talk with says, Laura, I just can't remember to take all these pills. I'm supposed to take them at mealtime, but I don't have them with me, or I just don't think about it at the right time. And then later on, when I think back to the meal, I can't even remember whether I took them or not. Another patient looks at me point blank and says, I will never remember to take these medications at mealtime. I don't care what you tell me, it's just not going to happen. I need you to give up right now. And one other patient, when asked about a once daily medication, told me, I do take the medication sometimes, but sometimes I forget to take the medication. So what am I supposed to tell these patients? I feel like I'm supposed to be the person who has all the right answers, and yet I've just told you about the fact that I struggle to take just one medication every single day. So what are some of the commonly used strategies that we do use? Well, one of the first approaches is to lecture the patient. We give the patient lots of reasons why they're supposed to do something. It's important for you to take this pill. It's important for the health of your heart, and it's important for the health of your bones. I need you to make sure that you remember to take this pill because it's very important for your health. Another approach is to give specific instructions. You need to take your phosphorus binders at every meal and snack. You can take it at the beginning of the meal, during the meal, or at the end of the meal. It's just really important that you take the pill during the time that the meal is in your stomach. One very popular, hand, uh, a popular strategy among many healthcare professionals is to give a handout. I call this the super duper handout strategy. And that's because Chances are we probably have a handout somewhere in our office that addresses the problem that the patient is having. Uh, we can take one handout and give it to the patient, and if for some reason that one doesn't work, there's a good chance we can go back in our office and find a different handout on the same topic. One last strategy that can be effective is motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is a style of communication that can work really well when you are having a patient talk through their resistance to changing their behaviors. All four of these different strategies that I've just described are things that we use commonly and they're things that we feel very comfortable using. And the thing about these strategies is that they work. They work 
for some of our patients. The problem is, is that these strategies don't work for all of our patients. And then we get frustrated when some of our patients, the ones that we call challenging, aren't able to follow through on the instructions that we've given to them. If healthcare professionals want to provide effective patient education to more of our patients, then we need to start by asking ourselves some very important questions. One of those important questions is, what is it that we actually want to accomplish by educating patients? What is it that we want to convey to patients and what is it that we actually want them to be able to achieve as the outcome? Do we want the patient to be able to have the right answer or do we want the patient to be able to do the right thing? Do we want the patient to have a degree in renal nutrition or some other aspect of health education or do we want the patient to actually be able to meet their nutrition or health related goals? Is the goal to provide information to the patient that the patient can repeat back to us? Or is the goal to actually change patient behaviors? What is the ultimate goal? I'd like to share a couple of thoughts on that topic. The first one comes from sociologist Dina Rose, who writes about the topic of childhood eating habits. She says, there's never been a time in history when a nation knew so much about nutrition and yet ate so poorly. If all it took to eat well was a knowledge of nutrition, we'd all be stellar eaters, but that is not the case. And here's another ob observation from Chip Heath and Dan Heath in their book, Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. Ultimately, they say, all change efforts boil down to the same mission. Can you get people to start behaving in a new way? Over the past couple of years, I have done a lot of reading and a lot of research exploring the topic of behavior change. I've learned some really effective approaches for educating patients. And in this presentation, I am very excited to talk with you about what I consider to be the holy grail of behavior change, building habits. I've just finished telling you that habits are the holy grail of behavior change. So what are habits? There are good habits like brushing our teeth, wearing seat belts, and obeying traffic signals. There are also bad habits like biting our nails, smoking cigarettes, or constantly checking our iPhones. Habits have the potential to affect every single area of our lives. They impact our relationships, they impact our health, our productivity, and even our happiness. Habits are basically patterns of behavior. And there are three characteristics that define a habit. The first characteristic is that we're only vaguely aware of performing habits. Usually when we're performing a habit, we're not thinking about what we're doing. We're just doing it. The second characteristic of a habit is that the act of performing a habit is curiously emotionless. Through repetition, the actions that have become habits have actually lost their emotional flavor. This is true whether the habit is something that's rewarding or difficult. The third characteristic is that habits are strongly associated with our environment. Basically, people tend to perform the same actions in the same context. 
So why would I decide to focus not just on a specific behavior, but actually on patterns of behavior? Why focus on habits? Well, here's what I'd like to tell you the magic is about habits. The key to habits is automaticity. Basically, after we repeat a behavior enough times, it actually becomes automatic and we no longer have to think about it. That to me seems like a win-win situation. If I'm providing patient education to someone and I can actually teach them to make a behavior automatic, it means I don't have to remind them every time they come in. It means they don't have to remind themselves every time that they perform the behavior. It actually becomes more automatic over time. So rather than requiring willpower or some fantastic memory to make something happen, instead, we've built a habit and it just happens automatically. I'd like to ask you this important question. What percent of our daily actions are actually automatic and habitual? Do you think it's a quarter of our daily actions? Half of our daily actions? Three quarters of our daily actions? The answer to that question is that about 40% of our daily actions are automatic and habitual. That means that nearly half of the things that we do every day are things that are patterns of behavior, things that we don't stop and think about, we just go ahead and do them. This is actually a really important thing about habits. And in truth, we couldn't function without habits. Imagine that every time that you're in the same situation, you don't follow patterns of behavior. You actually have to decide what you're going to do every single time. Imagine that you're driving a car. You're thinking about where you're going to put your focus. Are you going to focus on your foot on the pedal? Are you going to think about uh, the driving the steering wheel? Are you going to be focusing on the mirrors on the road in front of you? When a behavior becomes a habit, when it's something that becomes automatic and habitual, you actually prevent yourself from becoming overwhelmed by something called decision fatigue. Rather than having to focus on making all of these decisions and wearing out all of your brain power, these are behaviors that have become automatic and therefore they spare brain space for other things that may be more important. How long does it take to form a habit? The answer may surprise you. Most people believe that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. And in fact, if you perform a Google search, you'll find that 21 days is the most popular answer. The thinking goes that if you repeat a behavior daily for 21 days, you will have a new habit at the end of those 21 days. Whether it's starting an exercise program, quitting smoking, writing a diary, or turning cartwheels, 21 is your magic number. There's some different theories about where this number comes from. One possible source is a 1960 book that was published by a plastic surgeon named Maxwell Maltz. Maxwell Maltz observed that it takes amputees on average about 21 days to adjust to the loss of a limb. Based on this information, Dr. Maltz speculated that it would take about 21 days for people to adjust to other life, major life changes as well. A study at University College London was conducted to answer this question about how long it actually takes to form a new habit. For this particular study, 96 participants were asked to choose an everyday behavior that they would like to turn into a habit. 
Many of these behaviors were health-related. For example, eating a piece of fruit with lunch or running for 15 minutes after dinner. Each of the 84 days of the study, each participant logged into a website and they reported two things. First, whether they performed the behavior, and second, how automatic it felt. After the results were analyzed, the conclusions were rather surprising. The simple answer to the question about how long it takes to form a new habit is that on average it took not 21 but 66 days until a habit was formed. The other observation was that missing a day or two didn't much affect the formation of a behavior. The complicated answer to this question is that it depends. It depends on the behavior and it depends on the person. People who resolve to drink a glass of water after breakfast reached maximum automaticity after just 20 days. However, someone who decided to eat a piece of fruit with lunch, it took twice as long. For people who are trying to form exercise habits, those were especially troublesome. One participant who resolved to do 50 sit-ups after morning coffee each day had still not reached maximum automaticity after 84 days. And someone else who had resolved to walk 10 minutes after breakfast, it took 50 days before that person reached maximum automaticity. One of the most important observations about this study is that there's actually a curved relationship between repeating a habit and the automaticity of the behavior. What this means is that the earlier repetitions of a behavior produce the greatest gains in automaticity. So when you're first starting a new behavior, the more often that you repeat it, the more likely you're going to make it that this behavior is going to become automatic. The gains in automaticity become smaller as time goes on. The other interesting observation, at least for these researchers, was that for a minority of participants, change did not come naturally, not at all. In fact, researchers said they were surprised by how slowly habits actually formed. For some of the habits that were not reaching maximum automaticity at 84 days, the researchers actually extrapolated those behaviors and determined that it might take 254 days for those habits to form. So in terms of how long it takes for a habit to form, it could be anywhere from 20 days to 254 days, nearly a year. So one of the things that we need to think about as we're forming our own habits and we're encouraging patients to form their own habits is that it likely will take longer than we think it should. It would be nearly impossible for me to have a discussion about changing behaviors and forming new habits without mentioning B.J. Fogg, who is a behavioral psychologist at Stanford University who's been studying these topics for more than 20 years. According to B.J. Fogg, there are three ways that he knows to effectively change behaviors. Number one is to have an epiphany. Number two is to change your environment or your surroundings. Number three is to take baby steps. According to B.J. Fogg, having an epiphany is difficult, and it's not something that happens commonly. However, the two other steps are very doable, very possible, and he's actually created a program called Tiny Habits Academy where you can sign up for a free five-day course in creating your own tiny habits. 
About a year ago, I decided to sign up for a session of BJ Fogg's five-day tiny habits course. This was my first time taking a foray into the arena of changing my behavior and trying to form new habits. And it was one of my first opportunities to try walking in the shoes of my patients, whom I'm constantly asking to try to change behaviors and learn how to do new things. After signing up for BJ Fogg's five-day tiny habits course, I was asked to determine three behaviors that I would like to turn into habits. I feel a little hesitant to share these habits with you because they feel kind of personal. And I want you to know that. I want to share this journey with you. And I want you to understand that for some of your patients, sharing their behaviors and sharing their struggles, those are things that may feel very personal to them as well. And it's really important to try to keep an open mind and an open heart when they're sharing these things with you. I thought a lot about which behaviors I would like to actually turn into habits. And in the end, I decided three different behaviors. The first one was that I wanted to apply Vaseline to my lips two times a day. This is because I have suffered from chapped lips for as long as I can remember. And at one point, I had a colleague who mentioned that she never had chapped lips, and she felt that was due to the fact that for as long as she can remember, she's always put Vaseline on her lips right after she brushed her teeth. I thought, hey, this is a five-day project. I can try that. I can see if this makes a difference. So the first habit that I set was after I brush my teeth, then I will apply Vaseline to my lips. The other two behaviors that I chose are related to mindful eating, which was an area that I was exploring and reading about at the time. The second behavior was after I sit down to eat, then I will pause to take a deep breath. Basically, the intent there was that I wanted to have a mindful moment before I actually started eating. I wanted to make sure that I was actually paying attention to the action of eating my meal and my mind wasn't in uh, an entirely different place. The third behavior that I decided on was after I take a bite, then I will put down my fork. So the intent was that after each bite of food, I would put my fork down on the plate or on the table, and therefore I would be able to actually focus on the bite of food that was in my mouth. So those are the three behaviors that I chose. Applying Vaseline to my lips twice a day, pausing to take a deep breath after I sat down to eat, and then putting down my fork after I take a bite. One of the things that you'll notice about each of these habits is that they're actually a sequence of behaviors. So one of the things that BJ Fox asks us to do when we're starting to introduce a new behavior is to actually link it to something that we're already doing. So when it came to applying Vaseline to my lips, I decided that a good time to do that not only because my um, my colleague had told me that was the time that worked for her, but because it was something that I did routinely, is that I would do that after I brushed my teeth. And relating to the eating behaviors, um, taking a deep breath after I sat down to eat, that seemed to make sense, and then putting down my fork after I took a bite, those were other obvious items. So how did things go during my five days in the program? Each of the days that I participated in this program, I received an email from the Tiny Habits Academy, and it asked me whether I had performed each of the three behaviors. I can say that during the five days of the Tiny Habits course, I was able to perform the first behavior, 
After I brushed my teeth, I applied Vaseline to my lips. I was able to do that every day. I may have missed once or twice, but I was actually able to follow through on that. One of the reasons that I think I was successful is that I had the bottle of Vaseline and I had actually changed my environment. I put it right there next to my toothbrush. So every single time that I brushed my teeth, I would see the Vaseline and know that that was something that I was going to do after I finished brushing my teeth. As for the other habits, the mindful eating habits, I found those to be more troublesome. Um, There are probably a few different reasons for this. Uh, Number one is that those were behaviors that were repeated more frequently. Um, And therefore, because they were repeated more frequently, certainly that gave me an opportunity to increase my automaticity for the behavior, but it also meant that I was required to perform it more often. Uh, And the other thing is that um, eating is really a deeply ingrained habit. And for, I would guess, all of us, we've been eating since we were very young and we have, uh, you know, it's become very habitual. And so it's quite common for us to actually sit down to eat and have our mind in an entirely different place. So... Um, I found that those mindful eating behaviors were a lot more difficult. I might be able to perform them once or perhaps twice uh, during the day. I know that I would stop and pause before I ate dinner because it was a habit in our house to be able to say grace before dinner, but to do it at breakfast or lunch was a lot more difficult. And as for putting the fork down in between each bite, Uh, At a certain point, it became a lot of work to have to do that with every single bite. And it happened many, many, many times during the meal. Is that something that I could continue to work at and try to create and build into another, into a, a better habit? Is that something that I think could be beneficial in terms of my eating and my mindfulness and my enjoyment of my food? I believe all of those things. But I do wanna point out that these are eating behaviors that are deeply ingrained and for ourselves and also for our patients, that means that it may be even harder for us to change those specific eating behaviors and our specific eating patterns. Overall, I would recommend the five-day habits course. I think it's a great introduction in terms of learning to change behaviors, and there's certainly some ways that you can further it and repeat it and gain even more valuable things out of it. I can say now, a year or more later, I actually continue to apply Vaseline to my lips two times every day. This is the the first winter that I've had that I haven't suffered from really bad chapped lips. So in terms of that, I got a great bonus out of the deal. I already explained the challenges with my eating habits, but I think that that is something that I could continue to work on most definitely. And there are probably some other really valuable behaviors that I would like to um, form into habits. And using the five-day habits course is a great way to get started in that process. One clever trick that's used by the Tiny Habits program and that you can use in forming your own habits on your own is something called an implementation intention or an action trigger. Using this particular strategy is something that can actually double or triple your chance for success. In a study that was done at New York University, uh, students were able to earn extra credit by writing a paper about how they spent Christmas Eve. The catch was that they had to submit this paper by December 26. 
Most students had good intentions of completing the paper and earning extra credit. However, come December 26, only 33% of the students had actually written and submitted that particular paper. There was another group, and that group was asked to create mental plans called implementation intentions or action triggers. Essentially, what they were asked to do is in advance to note exactly when and where they intended to write this paper. So for example, one of the students may have decided, in my dad's office on Christmas morning before everyone wakes up, I'm going to write this extra credit paper. In this group, with only this one minor difference, 75% of these students completed the report. That's more than double the success rate of the initial group. So what's so special about implementation intentions? Well, implementation intentions will not get you to do something that you don't want to do. If these students had been invited to participate in an online calculus camp on Christmas Day, I don't think an implementation intention would have been able to encourage them to follow through. However, implementation intentions have a profound power to motivate people to do the things they need to do. Did you hear that? A profound power to motivate people to do the things they need to do. That's exactly the situation that I was in with my vitamin D pill that I described to you earlier. And I believe that's the same situation that many of our patients are also in when they're struggling with changing their behaviors. The great thing about implementation intentions is that essentially they preload a decision. There's no conscious deliberation when that moment comes because you've already handed the decision over to the environment. You don't have to think about what you're going to do because you've already decided. Essentially, implementation intentions are instant habits. At the most basic level, implementation intentions are when-then statements. So first you decide when a particular behavior is going to happen, uh, so what the cue is going to be. And then you decide what the specific behavior is going to be. It doesn't actually have to be the whole behavior that you're going to perform. It's possible to shrink the behavior to just the very smallest, most ridiculously small step. And once you complete that first very small step, you're much more likely to follow through with the rest of the behavior. So what if I think about that behavior that I was struggling with earlier in this talk, taking my vitamin D pill? Let me think about some of the different times that I could actually choose to take the pill. I could choose to take it in the morning. I could say, when I come downstairs to prepare my breakfast, then I can take out my vitamin D bottle. I am not sure that's going to work for me because my mornings are really chaotic, but that's certainly an option. How about if I do it at nighttime? I could say when I go into the bathroom to brush my teeth, then I can pick up my vitamin D bottle. That would be another option. Another thing to note is that the implementation intention does not necessarily have to be related to the actual time that you're performing the behavior. So as an example, I might say, um, when I pack my lunch bag in the morning, then I'll make sure the vitamin D pill bottle is in there. I know that when I sit down to eat my lunch and I see that pill bottle in there, 
I'm going to be pretty likely to take the bottle. So just me checking at home that it's there is going to be the step that I can take to make sure that the behavior continues the way that I want it to. One other clever way to use implementation intentions is to use it not just for performing a specific behavior, but also to think about and predict barriers that you may have to performing that behavior. So for example, I may forget to take a vitamin D pill and it may be helpful for me to think about what I'll do ahead of time if that's a problem. So when I forget to take a vitamin D pill, then I will take it at my next earliest opportunity. When I forget to take a vitamin D pill one day, then the next day I'll take two pills to make up for it. Or maybe I'll have something like when I forget to take a vitamin D pill, then I'll forgive myself and start again the next day. I can also use this for other things, such as the fact that eventually I'm going to have to get a new bottle of vitamin D pills. When the bottle is halfway empty, then I will put vitamin D pills on my grocery list and pick them up at my next shopping trip. Or I can be especially clever and say, when I buy the next bottle, then I'll buy two bottles so I have another one for backup. Let's think about how implementation intentions can be really valuable to our patients for taking their pills. I think implementation intentions work great for one of the pills that I talk about with patients all the time, which is taking phosphorus binders every time that they eat. I can tell patients when you sit down to the table, then make sure that there's a binder at your plate. The reason that I do it then and not when I take my first bite that I take my first binder is when you sit down to the meal and you're looking at the plate to see if it's there, if it's not there, you're still on your feet and you can go find the pill bottle and make sure that you get that pill on the table. Once again, you don't necessarily need to have the specific behavior at the same time that it's gonna be performed. I've had some patients do some super clever things with implementation intentions. Um, when they pack their snack for dialysis, then they add a pill to the bag. They add their binder to the bag, so it's in there when they're actually eating the snack. I also heard another really clever one, a patient who ate a lot of freezer meals, and the patient would actually put the pills onto the freezer meals at the time that she was putting them into the freezer after going grocery shopping. So her implementation intention would be something like, when I go shopping and put my freezer meals into the freezer, then I will tape a binder to each one of the freezer meals so it's available when I actually go to eat the meal later on. You can use implementation intentions for all kinds of pain points in your life, things that are difficult, things that you suffer through. It basically encourages you to think about when the best time might be to perform a specific behavior, and maybe that time is better than whatever you're doing right now. As an example, my cue for filling up the gas tank of my car for a very long time was when the gas light went off on the car. This was something that could be a bad thing if I wasn't close to a gas station. And it was something that always bothered my husband when uh, it was the middle of the winter and he was concerned that um, you know the gas may freeze and it might be a problem for the car running every day. So I went ahead and I changed that implementation intention. I changed the cue for the behavior. So now, um, 
my implementation intention is when the gas tank is half empty, then I will stop at the gas station at my next opportunity. The really great thing about this is I don't have to fill it up right away. It's not like the gas light went off in my car. And it makes me feel a lot less anxious when I'm driving my car because when I notice that it's halfway empty, it makes me wanna go and fill up the tank. Whereas when I was waiting for the light to go off before, I knew it was something that I had to take care of right away. And I didn't have any flexibility in terms of when it was gonna work best for my schedule. So implementation intentions are a fabulous tool to use when you're forming new habits, both yourself and for your patients. They can be used when you're thinking about the specific behavior that you wanna have happen and when the best time is for that to actually happen. And they can also be used uh, when you're thinking about barriers that you're going to encounter when you're actually trying to perform this behavior. As I said before, an implementation intention can double or triple your chances for success. One other strategy that can be really helpful to use when forming new habits and sticking with new behaviors is something called pre-commitment. Pre-commitment is a way to restrict the choices of your future self by making a decision when your self-control is high and setting up the environment so that you basically have no choice but to follow through with the behavior when the time comes. Let me give you an example for this one. I think food indulgences are a really great example for this one. For me, chocolate and ice cream are two foods that I love to eat. And a way that I could use the pre-commitment strategy to set myself up for success would be to not keep ice cream in the house, to not purchase chocolate at the store. If those food items aren't available, in my house at the time that I want to eat them, it makes it much more difficult for me to follow through on that particular behavior. This is something that patients can use also. Certainly, if you're concerned about phosphorus, the same way that I am, uh, a lot of patients may also uh, love some of those same food items. They may have a weakness for ice cream or for chocolate. And by setting up the environment so that they're not able to eat those foods every single time that they see it or would like to have it, um, it sets them up for future success. As I've stated, I've been exploring the areas of behavior change and forming new habits for well over a year now. I'm constantly on the lookout for new strategies and thinking about ways that I can incorporate those strategies in my life and also in the lives of my patients so that we can improve our overall quality of life. I would like to finish out today by giving you an example from my own life in which I've used the three different uh, strategies that I've talked about today. The tiny habits, the implementation intentions, and also the pre-commitment strategy. The example that I'm going to talk about is my morning routine. For me, the morning routine is something that's been very difficult. It's been difficult for me to wake up in the morning, to get out of the bed, ready to go, but I know it's really important to start out on the right foot. When I start out on the right foot, I can get a lot done early in the morning and it sets a good tone for the rest of the day. And when things don't go well, it's sort of the opposite that happens. So one of the first things that I noticed about my mornings is that when the alarm would go off beside my bed, often I would just reach over and turn it off but I wouldn't be in any particular rush to get out of the bed. 
this would cause problems later on. So one of the first things that I did is I used a pre-commitment strategy and doing something that I had read about, I took my clock and I moved it from my bedside table to a dresser across the room. So now in the morning, when the alarm goes off across the room, in order to turn off that noise, I have to get out of my bed to walk over to the alarm and turn it off. The pre-commitment to put the alarm across the room is certainly a great first step, but it's not gonna mean that the rest of the morning routine goes off without a hitch. The next strategy that I decided to try was a tiny habit. I decided to sequence a couple of things together. So the tiny habit that I created was after I turn off the alarm in the morning, then I'll go into the bathroom after I get into the bathroom, then I'll brush my teeth. After I brush my teeth, I'll drink a glass of water. As you can see, those tiny habits sequenced one after the other certainly sets things more into the right direction. One of the last things that I really wanted to do with my mornings is I really wanted to try to incorporate more exercise. It's something that's been a goal of mine for a long time, but I found it really difficult to incorporate at the end of the day because I always feel like I have the excuse that I feel too tired, that there's too many other things going on. So now that I've turned off the alarm across the room, now that I've gone into the bathroom and brushed my teeth and drank my glass of water, I decided to create an implementation intention. That implementation intention is that when I get to the bottom of the stairs, then I'll put on my walking shoes. I know that once I put on those walking shoes, it's gonna increase the likelihood that I get out the door and actually get a walk-in in the morning. So how did all of this work out? Well, I'll tell you, moving the alarm and then creating those tiny habits going from the alarm into the bathroom and down the stairs, there's certainly something that helped me to get out of bed in a more timely fashion. But that exercise habit was really difficult for me to follow through on some mornings. I just had other things that I decided I would do first and some other things that happened to get in the way. The last thing that I wanna mention is that sometimes routines are impacted by new or unexpected things. These don't have to be bad things. They could be good things like starting a new job or moving to a new house, going on vacation, starting summer vacation, having a baby. All of these are positive experiences, but certainly they're going to disrupt some of your normal routines. Routines can also be impacted by things that are more negative, things like stressful situations or poor health. Keep in mind that some new situations can make it easier to start new habits. If you're going on vacation, you don't have all the routines of your old home. If you're starting a new job, then obviously that's gonna change some different things too, and it can make it easier for you to start forming new habits and performing new behaviors. Likewise, some of those changes can also make it more likely that you'll fall back into old habits. So when you're experiencing a lot of stress in your life, whether it's related to your health or other particular situations, 
um, it can make it more difficult for you to continue performing behaviors that you've been working so hard to achieve. So it's really important to acknowledge this, both for yourself and for your patients, to tell people that this is something that can be normal and that it's okay to be patient with yourself and to know that you may have to work harder at these habits, at least for another period of time. I just finished telling you about how the exercise habit was something that was really difficult for me in the morning. Well, something unexpected happened about a year ago. My husband went with a friend to an animal shelter because she was interested in getting a pet. My husband was actually interested in talking her out of a pet. However, when he came back home, he was telling me about a dog that he'd seen there that reminded him of a pet that he'd had when he was growing up. Less than a week later, we were the proud owners of Bella, a Labrador Beagle mix. There were a lot of changes that happened when Bella came into the house, some of them positive, some of them challenging. But one of the really great things that happened is that bringing a dog into the house, especially when your yard isn't fully fenced, is it requires you to take the dog for frequent walks. The morning after we welcomed Bella to our family, the alarm went off across the room. And after I turned it off and turned back towards my bed, all of a sudden I had a dog at my feet. From that day forward, one of the most important priorities for my morning routine was that after I came downstairs, I had to put on my walking shoes so I could take Bella outside for her morning walk. So while I may not have been aware of it at the time that we brought Bella home from the animal shelter, she turned out to be one of the most powerful pre-commitment strategies that I had in terms of giving me a consistent morning routine where I could wake up every morning and also be sure to get in my exercise. Now is a really good time to go back to talking about the vitamin D pill that I was struggling with at the beginning of this talk. After that discussion in the front office with my clinic manager and secretary, I set an implementation intention. When I walk into the bathroom every night to brush my teeth, then I pick up the vitamin D pill bottle. And since I started using that strategy, my record for taking that pill consistently has improved greatly. As for the patients on the dialysis floor, the ones who were also struggling with getting their pills in, we tried using a variety of strategies. For one of the patients who was having problems being consistent with his pills, having them with him at mealtime, remembering to take them at mealtime, and then not even remembering whether he'd taken them, he got really good at changing his environment. So he had pills in multiple locations. And every time I saw him on the floor, I would ask him how things were going with his phosphorus binders. The change did not happen quickly and the results were not immediate. It took most of a year before he became consistent with his pill taking habit. What I can tell you is that after he became more consistent with taking his binders, he was able to achieve the phosphorus target. Even better than that, after this new routine became more consistent, he was called in for a kidney transplant. One of the most important things for keeping a kidney transplant healthy 
is to take your transplant medications the way that they're prescribed. And now that this patient had created consistent habits with his phosphorus binders, I knew that he was going to have great success developing a consistent routine with his transplant medications. As for the other patients, we tried to work with consistent routines that they'd already created. The one patient who insisted he couldn't take his phosphorus binders at mealtime told me that he took his other medications at bedtime. And when I asked him how well and how consistently he was able to take those pills at bedtime, he told me, oh, 100% of the time, I never miss. Although phosphorus binders are meant to be taken with meals, we were able to move them to, with his other bedtime pills, which increased his ability to take them. And even though he's taking them differently than they're normally prescribed, he's been able to achieve the phosphorus target far more times than he ever was before. And as for that last patient, the one who told me that he sometimes missed his once daily medication, he said he thought he was supposed to take it in the afternoon, that the timing of the medication was really important. But he agreed to try moving the medication earlier in the day when he was also taking a number of other pills. I'm looking forward to finding out how that change plays out over time. In summary, before judging a patient for their inability to change a behavior, try changing one of your own behaviors first. Pay attention, notice what you're doing. Try using one of the strategies that I talked about today and see what happens. The journey may not be easy and it may take much longer than you ever expected. But when you take some time to walk in the shoes of your patients, that's something that can impact your life and your patients' lives in some very powerful ways. Thank you so much for listening. I invite you to subscribe to the Operation Health Caring Podcast or to visit the website at operationhealthcaring.com.